Let's pray before we get started into this. Father, we ask you to fill us with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order that we may live a life worthy of you, Lord, and may please you in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of you, Lord. Amen. Well, it's quite a reading, and it's quite a book. You guys have been in the thick of it. I have not been here for most of the series on Jeremiah, and there was a lot of catching up to do. It has been a bit of a journey over the last week as I've read through the story so far and tried to get my feeble intellect into what exactly is going on. And as we look at the story of Jeremiah, we get to chapter 36, and this is a crucial tipping point in the story of what is going on in the final days of the nation of Judah. Judah stands on the brink. I was trying to think about what it could have been like. And not that I was there, but I imagine if you had been in Poland in the 1930s, with huge threats on every border, Stalin's communist Russia on one side and Hitler's Nazi Germany on the other. I imagine that's what it would have been like for little Judah. It had a brief flooring of independence as the Assyrian Empire to the north had collapsed. The national identity had been re-established. The book of the law had been discovered in the temple. And for the first time in the whole history of Israel, the nation had been led by a king who had sought to live in the way that God had planned for the nation. Culture and national pride had been flooring. The people had reconnected with a way of life that honoured God. Sickening practices of idol worship and child sacrifice had been stopped. But then the celebrated King Josiah had died prematurely in a battle against the Egyptian empire. The pharaoh had taken Josiah's first son as a captive to Egypt and left his younger brother, Jehoiakim, to rule the nation in his place. But just as in pre-war Poland, the leadership is trying to steer a line of diplomacy, but threat is all around it. Egypt is flexing its muscle on one side, and the newly emergent Babylonian Empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar, is on the other side. There's a ferment of intrigue. There are pro-Egyptian voices. There are pro-Babylonian voices. There are staunch, independent voices. You can imagine yourself sitting in a Jerusalem coffee house, reading the latest news on your up-to-date tablet gadget, probably carved out of granite, sifting through the political editorials. It would have been a cauldron of political solutions, all cooked up to construct 
the nation's survival. And the leadership given by Jehoiakim is nothing like his father Josiah's leadership. It says he does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now God speaks into this situation. The fourth year of Jehoiakim, king, or king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and the other nations. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they each will turn from their wicked ways and I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. These are the very words that need to be heard. This is the survival guide that has been quested for, the political and spiritual solution that the nation of Judah needs. Jeremiah had been soaked in God's word for all of his life. He was there when Josiah rediscovered the books of the law. He was there when it was read aloud in the temple. He would have heard God's plan for his people proclaimed, the epic story of the covenant and the mighty adventures of the nation of Israel as God journeyed with them from Abraham to Moses. God's promise of a land. How they were to live as his people when they were given that land. The totality of what it means to be the people of God. God actively and energetically dealing with his people. Doing it in love. Jeremiah would have seen the faithful hand of God blessing the nation as Josiah led the people in repentance, tearing his royal clothes in recognition of the depth of the nation's sin and rejection of God's design for blessing. He would have seen the people destroying their idols, making God's ways priority in their personal lives, the national life, and in government. The word of God received, believed, and redeeming the nation as it was responded to. But how things have changed. In the space of only four and a half years with Jehoiakim at the helm, it's as if he has never even heard of the book of Deuteronomy that had been read in the temple in his dad's day. The mercy of God's delayed judgment on the nation during Josiah's revival maybe have been interpreted as invincibility, as a cult of believing that Jerusalem, the site of the temple of Yahweh, Israel's God, was making Jerusalem invincible, safe from harm. There's a rapid descent into every sort of corruption and sin, and it's led from the front by Jehoiakim. And into this national mess, God speaks. Take the scroll, write the words, and I will speak and listen when the people are ready to hear. It's a pivotal point 
in the book of Jeremiah. What will be the response of the nation as its leaders listen and hear God speak, as the people listen to and hear God speak? This will be the final time in the book of Jeremiah that redemption is laid out on the table for the people. God has something to say to the people. He's not secretive about it. He's not pulling the rug out from under the people's feet. He reveals his message in an accessible form. Take a scroll, write the message, and that develops into hear the message, which develops into turn, which develops into forgive. God's word is not a static thing. It's not an optional summer novel, something to play around with. Take, write, turn. Take, write, hear, turn, forgive. These are all visible and very active things, and they invite the people to respond. But what will be their response? For 23 years, Jeremiah has been out there in the nation, speaking difficult messages in difficult times. For 23 years, he's been speaking and dramatizing the word of God to the great and insignificant of Judah. For 23 years, he has been walking a tightrope of unpopularity, threatened, persecuted, ridiculed, and now even banned from the temple. And now he calls in his friend Baruch, and together they compose the message that God has given and write it on the scroll, recording what God has given to Jeremiah over the past 23 years. Now the word of God, written and alive, takes center stage in the narrative. It's no longer about Jeremiah or Baruch, it is about the word. The next scene opens on a national day of fasting in the temple. It sounds promising. Everyone's there. Then Baruch opens up the scroll and reads it from a vantage point where everyone can hear him. And what's the response from the people? Nothing. Not a single response from the people is recorded in the narrative. Nothing from the farmers, the bankers, the teachers, cobblers, builders, shopkeepers. There's only one person recorded doing anything in response. Micaiah, the grandson of the man who had found and read the book of Deuteronomy to King Josiah 17 years earlier, he acts swiftly. He hears God speak, and he involves his own father, a court official who organizes that Baruch reads the word of God to the nobles of the palace. And what is their response? A change of heart? A lobbying for national repentance? Well, it's not convincing. In their favor, they tell Baruch to get himself offside and take Jeremiah with him. They have seen Jehoiakim in all his ruthless anger already, having killed a prophet, Uriah, who he kidnapped from Egypt after an unpopular message and had him murdered, killing him with his own sword. But whether it's survival politics or realism, the officials decide what we have to do is pass this on up the chain to the man at the top, Jehoiakim. 
Surely now, when the nation is in such dire straits, Jehoiakim will listen and respond to this word as it's directed straight at him. Now, living in the Irish climate, you can just picture the scene. It's cold outside, it's winter. There's no central heating here in Jehoiakim's palace, and he's warming his hands and feet at a roaring fire set in a fire pit in the center of the room. You can imagine him brooding, looking out the window at gray skies, looking at the distant horizon where the two great opposing empires stand poised with their armies. You can imagine him listening to the murmur of people gathered in the temple complex below. And the word of God now comes to him. It's hard to imagine a more inappropriate and shocking response. The contempt that is portrayed here is stark. Am I bothered? Do I care? What was going on in his head, in his heart? Well, it's a clear portrayal of leadership that is arrogant and spiritually dull. Jehoiakim has moved on from the dependence on God for guidance. He is young, strong, and independent. You can almost see the smirk on his face as he shows off to his advisors. Yet his actions betray his heart, a heart condition that is bulking against the change in life that God's Word is demanding of him. God's Word is demanding a redirection of his foreign policies. It's demanding maybe a loss of face with the treaties that he's put together. It's demanding him to make massive U-turns in his life. And this king is not for turning. There's a sharp contrasting picture being drawn here between the ripping of God's word by Jehoiakim with Josiah, his dad, and what he did whenever he heard God's word, ripping his clothes in despair. So what are the big ideas in this passage? As I read it through in preparation, I kept thinking about what do I do with God's word? What do we do with God's word? How many sermons have I heard? How many hours have I spent reading the Bible or heard it being read? How many Christian books have I read? How many times have I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me about things, reminding me about things? What have I done with God's Word? What am I doing with God's Word here and now? Well, God's Word is not an easy message. It wasn't an easy message in Jeremiah's day. If we ever think it is something to be played with and treated lightly, then we're foolish in the extreme. What Jeremiah was given to say was a very, very tough, unpopular message. And is the message that we receive in God's Word any easier? Forgive him so your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, 
turn to him the other also. Be careful not to do your deeds of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink, about your body, what to wear. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Those are countercultural and counter-individualistic messages. That is the word of God spoken into our lives. Not easy. God's word is not written in order to give us a ready-break glow about us as we feel it and read it. It demands careful listening and action to to hear and to turn. The people of Judah were in the temple. They were even fasting. That's extremely religious. But they didn't respond. It isn't enough to be in the right place and allow the words to flow over us. We are called to hear God's word and like Mary, to treasure it in our hearts so that we have in our minds, so we have it in our minds, molding our attitudes and our actions. We need to allow God's word to soak through every fiber of our beings. Now this week I've been working on an assignment, 3,000 words on the Irish Celtic Church and its missionary impact across Europe. And as I've read about Columba, Patrick, and the other great fathers of faith, it's evident that they fueled their lives and their passion for Jesus and for reaching the barbarian hordes of Balamina and beyond by allowing God's word to soak through every fiber of their bodies and beings. Aidan insisted that all his companions learn Psalms and Scripture as they walked together. Patrick's motivation for mission, also grounded in his love for God's word, he said this 1,500 years ago, and I wish to wait then for God's promise, which is never unfulfilled. Just as it's promised in the gospel, many shall come from the east and west and shall sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as we believe that believers will come from all the world. So for that reason, one should in fact fish well and diligently, just as the Lord foretells and teaches, saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Those men and women of faith that brought the gospel message to our land and spread it throughout the whole of Western Europe lived out a life that was faithful to God's word. And we can do that too. We can be faithful. We can spur each other on towards love and good deeds. We can be mutually encouraged 
by each other's faith. God Himself gives us endurance and encouragement. So how often, when we read the Bible, do we do so in order to let it speak to us? Do we ever read the Bible to our friends? Do we read the Bible to our kids, to our grandkids, to our grandparents, to our wags, it's wives and girlfriends, to our habs, it's husbands and boyfriends? Do we ask each other about what God's saying to us? When was the last time we had that conversation with anyone? Do we expect God to speak to us when we're in church? Are we really listening for him to speak? Are we ready to U-turn? Are we ready to lose face? Are we ready to reprioritize our lives? Do we even want God to talk to us? Or would we rather slice and burn his word as it comes to us? There's a recent campaign by one online agency which is offering dating services for married men and women to have affairs. And it's not alone in the marketplace. Apparently there are dozens of agencies like this one. What's new is that they plan to execute an extensive advertising campaign specifically on massive billboards next to motorways with the slogan, the grass is always greener. Essentially they're making money from feeding on people's weaknesses, helping them to be unfaithful. This may seem attractive, but the reality is that unfaithfulness is always disastrous. As it's often been said, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence, it's greener where we water it. Judah had watered the grass of independence, of materialism, of political solutions, of alternative belief systems and values. The king and the nation had left the grass of God's kingdom to wither in the field. And now, the moment of national salvation has dropped out of Jehoiakim's hand and into the brazier. Consumed by fire. The Babylonians are rampaging across Palestine and hope seems to be extinguished as God's word is rejected. The disaster of Judah's unfaithfulness is unfolding. But God's word endures. Jeremiah and Baruch get to work and recopy the scroll, but more specific judgment is added to what had previously been written. Jeremiah and Baruch are kept safe by God while they carry out the task that he has set for them. And what, are the fa- what is the faithfulness of God's word? Well, there's more to come in the story of Jeremiah. And God is true to his word. Terrible days are coming for Judah and for her people. Terrible days lie ahead for Jeremiah and Baruch. But God remains faithful 
and does not change. And his word to Baruch in chapter 45 comes with a hope given to it. For I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord, but wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. Eugene Peterson has written on this chapter in his book, Running with Wild Horses. Is that right, Christoph? Close. Okay. Keep on thinking of crazy horses by the Osmonds, but uh, it's not quite that. So it's something about running with horses. It is a book that you can no longer buy in any of the Christian bookshops. I've tried to do that this week. Uh, but I know some of you have been reading that. And in that chapter on this, uh, chapter 36, this is what he says. If you were shipwrecked on a desert island, what single book would you most like to have? He goes through a whole selection of possible answers. But this is the best answer that he receives. It was surprising but obvious. Butler's Practical Guide to Boat Building. The book of Jeremiah, the book that Jeremiah read in the guise of Deuteronomy, and the book that Jeremiah wrote are both boat-building kinds of books about things that allow you to survive, getting back home. They show how a life is constructed that gets us where we're supposed to be to God. All of Scripture is similarly written. Jeremiah was used to rebuild lives that suffered the shipwreck of exile. Along with the 64 other books that have been added to them, they continue to present the Word of God to shipwrecked people and to construct a way of salvation. Amen.